0: With the book of Joshua, we move into our first book outside of the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the most holy scriptures of the Jewish people. And in the book of Joshua, we're going to be confronted with the ambiguities that shape human life, the interplay between divine initiative and human response, and we're going to be confronted with the tension that exists between reality and the ideal. The book of Joshua also highlights the complexities of discerning and honoring God's will. The boundaries between God's people and other people seem to be a little more fluid than they were presented to be in Exodus Numbers and Deuteronomy. We see this especially in the stories of Rahab, of Achan, and of the Gibeonites. In chapter 1, we have an opening speech that forges a connection between Deuteronomy. The story continues with Joshua, so the two books are kind of joined together. The servant of the Lord is a phrase that's going to be used 14 times in connection with Moses, highlighting his special authority and his role in history. Joshua was Moses' assistant, it tells us. That is on-the-job training. This was a mentoring situation where Joshua learned all he needed to know from working alongside of Moses and then becomes his successor. In chapter two, the conquest narrative begins, and we immediately begin to grant mercy to those that the Mosaic law condemns. Rahab becomes the prototypical convert in rabbinic literature and a paradigm of saving faith in the New Testament. Her story puts a human face on the extermination that is ordered in the previous books. The spy's instruction to Rahab and her family sounds a little bit like Passover. Mark your house, stay inside, wait, and see what happens. This story is full of sexual innuendo. Um, Like so many other stories, the least and the last are often the most receptive to what God is doing. Um, Rahab seeks a quid pro quo situation. I saved you, now you save me. And the use of the phrase deal kindly, deal kindly is covenant language. Let's make a covenant. Let's pledge loyalty to one another. Rahab is living in the wall of the city. This is liminal space, in-between space. She is on the fringes of her culture, but not completely outside. But people on the fringes are often more open to where they might find a greater sense of belonging. And the red cord, I'm told, is the origin of red light districts. Isn't that interesting? In chapter 3, Israel crosses the the Jordan to begin taking their promised land. This too is reminiscent of their crossing the Red Sea or the Reed Sea as they escaped slavery. There's a great picture of following God in verse 3. Um, when you see God begin to move, move, and it reminds me of exodus thirty three fifteen where Moses says to God, "If you will not lead us, then don't let us go up from this place." Two thousand cubits is about a thousand yards, and the ark is the representation of God's presence with the people. In Chapter Four, twelve stones are taken out of the Jordan, one for each tribe to create a remembrance, and another set of stones are carried into the Jordan to create a remembrance in the middle of the river. These stones are remembrances and not idols, but that is always a danger When we create something to remember, we can begin to revenera- to venerate the thing that is a remembrance. Rather than the thing the remembrance is to point us to. And that's how we come to be, to worship, to be overly attached to all sorts of things from buildings to items to plaques, um, to, to things that, um, become remembrances and idols. They're supposed to be instrumental in teaching the next generation about the faith, something to draw to remind and remembrance in the way that things like stained glass windows and other icons have been instrumental in telling the story of faith, um, even picture Bibles. Verse 23 um, shows this passage. Passage through the water began their wandering in the wilderness, and another passage through water completes it. In chapter 5, we see the two rituals that are currently part of the identity of the people of God, and that is circumcision and the Passover. The wilderness generation neglected the command to circumcise their children, and so they have to catch it up and take care of it now. There are two groups of people that we're looking at right now one are the people living on the highlands the hill people those are the amorites the other is the canaanites they live in the coastal areas and the valleys but they are both people groups that are to be expelled from the land that god has promised to his people in verse 13 joshua's vision parallels moses burning bush experience so we have two theophanies Um, Theophany is the word for appearances of God. And so two theophanies bracket the exodus and wandering in the same way that two passages through the water or two symbolisms of baptism do as well. Um, The wandering part of their story is now over. In chapter six, we have the battle of Jericho. The number seven becomes important to this. Seven priests with seven trumpets. Are to venture around the city for seven days. And on the seventh day, they're going to go around seven times and then shout, and the walls will fall down. In verse 17, we are told that the city and everything in it is devoted to the Lord for destruction. Devoted to the Lord means permanent ownership is transferred to God. And for items, it means that those are confiscated and put into the temple treasury, or right now into the tabernacle treasury. And for the people, though, this means death. Only Rahab and her family are supposed to be spared. We're going to find out in chapter seven that this was not followed. And the dedication of the city itself, the land that the city sat on, prohibits its future inhabitation. People are never supposed to dwell there. People do, however, rebuild the city, and we see that destruction for them in 1 Kings 16, 34. In chapter 7, we discover that Achan has disobeyed and taken some of the the spoils for himself. The phrase broke faith is a Hebrew term implying an intrusion into the holy. Achan has stolen from God. He has taken holy things because it has been given to a holy God. He's literally stolen from the Lord. And the AI campaign fails because of it. AI means the ruins. Um, and it reminds the Hebrew people that they cannot succeed without God. They are overly confident, and they are trusting in their own power, and this is never a good thing for those of us who follow God. Our confidence comes from knowing that God is with us, and when we lean on our own understanding, Proverbs tells us we get in trouble. We also see the progression of Achan's sin. First, he looked, he desired, he coveted, he took, He kept, he concealed, and he lied. Uh, Very often our sin begins with the very first looking, allowing ourselves to see and entertain something. In chapter 8, we see that the people are allowed to keep some of the spoils from the conquering of Ai. Um, On this second attack that is successful, it reminds us that God was angry with Achan's disobedience and God is not just greedy for bounty. In verse 18, Joshua holds up a sword. This sword would have looked more like a javelin than the typical European knight sword that we think of. In verse 29, hanging is a sign of being cursed. And in verses 33 through 35, the participation of women, children, and foreigners affirms that devotion to God rather than ethnicity and gender define membership in God's community. The human beings are not always going to remember this. But over and over, if we look closely, the standard God sets for becoming part of his people is um, devotion and obedience. In chapter 9, the Gibeonites are going to save themselves using trickery. They are going to lie and form a treaty. And forming treaties with the people in the land was expressly forbidden. We can see that in Deuteronomy 7.2. Yet the Israelites are going to honor this treaty. Despite the fact that it was made under deceitful terms, they're going to keep their word. Remember that I've said your word was incredibly important when you lived in an oral society. You had to be able to trust what people said. Their crucial error was failing to ask for direction of the Lord. We see this in verse 14. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, speculated that had the people asked God, God probably would have spared them on the condition that they truly converted and worshipped the one true living God. In chapter 10, they're going to have a battle with five kings, a coalition of five kings that come against them. The defection of the Gibeonites has given Israel control of a plateau that cuts off the cities to the south from the powerful cities to the north. The Amorites cannot allow that to happen. They can't let those cities be cut off, so they have to try to retake it. We discover, however, that the Lord, according to the Israelites, the God is on their side. There's a hailstorm, huge hailstones like boulders are falling and the sun and the moon stand still. This may refer to an eclipse, but it lengthened the day. Everything just kind of paused. And Joshua's prayer here, invoking God and God's power over nature to come and assist them in this victory, sounds almost like an, an incantation. The book of Jasher that is mentioned in this chapter, we don't know anything else about it except that it's mentioned one other place in the Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 18. Exaggeration is very common in ancient battle accounts. We see that here, and we're going to see it throughout. Putting one's foot on someone's neck is a sign of dominance over them. In chapter 10, verses 28 through 39, we just get a list of Um, the conquests that are made. It's very formulaic. We see the same pattern as each one is recounted. And in verses 40 through 43, we have the first of four summaries in the book of Joshua of what has happened to that point. In chapter 11, we have another coalition of kings that's going to come against the Israelite people. In this case, all of the Canaanites unite against a common enemy, which is the Israelites, but the Lord is going to give them the victory, they say. In verse 14, the command to utterly destroy appears to be flexible. In verse 20, we are told that God hardens their hearts. And this reminds us of how they record that God hardened the hearts of, heart of Pharaoh in Egypt when they were trying to escape there. Verse 21 mentions the Anakim. Um, which was a race of very large people, sometimes referred to as giants. They are large in statue and they are large in power. They're also mentioned in Deuteronomy 128, 2.10, and 9.2. Verse 23 at the end of this chapter sounds like they have been successful and the mission is completed. But we're going to find out in Joshua 13 that this is not the case. When it says that they rested from war... It signifies that they have control, overall control. It doesn't mean that all of the hostilities have completely ceased. Chapter 12 is just a list of the 31 kings who have been conquered to this point. And then in chapter 13, we begin a new section of Joshua. 13.1 through 21.45 is a unit within the book of Joshua. It's a blend of writings from different times and sources, and the details of this next section are widely debated among scholars. The word inheritance, inheritance is going to be used 45 times in this unit between chapters 30, 13 and 21. It is the dominant descriptor of the promised land. It refers to legitimate ownership. There may be people there. And possession may be nine-tenths of the law. This may be the Canaanites see it as their land. But the Israelites over and over and over are going to refer to it as their inheritance. God has given it to them, and they see themselves as the, the legitimate owners of this land. We do see, however, in this chapter that vast tracts of the land remain outside of their complete control they have not expelled all the people it is not completely theirs it is an incomplete task And this failure to be entirely obedient, to give up before they have completely accomplished their mission is going to bring trouble for them down the road. It becomes an allegory for us that failure to be completely obedient to what God tells us to do leaves room for sin to get its foot in the door and becomes a seed that grows um, within us and can be trouble for us down the road. So these are the first 13 chapters of the book of Joshua.